today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. We certainly know the situation of uh, uh, conservative Tony Clement and uh, his situation in regard to uh, sexting inappropriate uh, uh, images and I then, then, I guess, allegedly being extorted for all of this. Uh, apparently, at the beginning, it was a one-time incident. Then, of course, it went beyond that, and uh, uh, Andrew Shear has uh, taken him out of the caucus, and he continues, uh, Tony Clement does, to, uh, I guess, try to figure out what the heck's going on. That being said, security issues are now being asked. Questions are being asked in and around security in, if any way, security was compromised. Let's bring in Peter Griff, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Yeah, good afternoon. So what was, uh, what are the security implications here? Why, why more red flags being raised? Well, I guess the issue is that Tony Clement is uh, one of uh, 11 uh, members of uh, Parliament, so either MPs or senators, who sit on a committee overseeing uh, Canada's national security and intelligence agencies. And so, uh, you know, these are a set of parliamentarians who are usually chosen uh, because of their seniority and their sense of trustworthiness, have to go through uh, a high-level security clearance. Uh, the point being that if you know if we're going to be a democratic country, our parliamentarians should have oversight of the security agency. But to do that in public would obviously make the security agencies not very effective. And so, this is an attempt to try and juggle uh, you know parliamentary oversight, uh, but uh, maintaining secrecy. And so, these uh, members of this committee have uh, access to you know quite detailed information about the strategies and difficulties being faced by our security agencies and. Uh, if one was to be in a compromised position, I suppose, one could let slip uh, some of that information. So how does the situation that Tony Clement finds himself in, um, how, does the, how is that reflected on this and security? Well, I mean, it really remains to be seen, uh, you know, what happened or didn't happen. And I suspect, given that it does uh, tie closely to security, a lot of... Uh, uh, the research that no doubt is going on in the security agencies about potential uh, slips of information will never be uh, divulged to Canadians. But, uh, you know, in most cases, uh, I don't think we would uh, have a, a large worry at this stage. But, you know, it does raise a question, you know, was there, if there was going to be extortion, uh, was there other ways that this kind of behaviour could have been used to uh, compromise aspects of security? I mean, it's important, too, in that this is, uh, you know, a long-term issue in Canada, the difficulty of finding a way to have civilian and parliamentary oversight of our security committees, uh, because ultimately the people who do the security uh, know what's going on and can be pretty uh, pick-and-choosy in terms of what sort of information they want to present and how they want to present it. Uh, so this is a new committee, and in part of the danger, of course, is that if they feel the parliamentarians are not taking it seriously, you know, we'll sit on this committee and yet do things that may lead them uh, to be compromised, mm. uh, will it lead to our security uh, services being even less ready uh, to share information and allow for a degree of civilian oversight? So less about his personal life and more about the fact that uh, this lapse in judgment opens up uh, uh, a question of security uh, with the country, uh, in in regard to the country, to extortion. I mean, he's he he could be putting himself and the this information in a compromising situation. Yeah, I mean, anyone who ends up sitting on one of these committees, uh, you know, does run that risk. Now, I mean, in this case, 
uh, you know, we do have the fact that uh, he was obviously, uh, you know, being blackmailed, and uh, he did the most effective thing when being blackmailed is uh, coming clean, even at the cost to his own career. Um, so in that sense, we maybe have less reason uh, to worry, although, again, uh, I'm sure checks will be done to see to what extent this was a first uh, situation or whether there might have been other uh, problems in the past. Who would be blackmailing him? And obviously we need to know those answers, don't we? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, again, you know, the story has been told and it's changed and, you know, uh, become much bigger over the course of the past three days. So it's hard to know what are facts and what are, you know, uh, ways of uh, portraying the situation that uh, maybe Mr. Clement preferred in the early days. I mean, certainly if he was being extorted for money, uh, one would get the sense that it was uh, people, uh, you know, who perhaps were trying to, uh, you know, use these sites where uh, people share potentially compromising uh, pictures of themselves as a way of, you know, figuring out who might be uh, blackmailable, but, you know, on for financial ends rather than for, for security ends. So, uh, you know, we may, we may uh, again, given the story that's been told, feel that it might not be that close to questions of security and tied more to you know, probably typically uh, organized crime. Is this about extortion or do you think it's about politics? Uh... Uh, is this like the the whole uh, mess around it? I mean, yeah, I mean, could somebody is somebody trying to set him up politically? Well, it's possible. Although, I mean, that could have been done without having to ask for money. Uh, I presume simply releasing right. the photographs uh, or the texts uh, would have been enough to set in motion. You know what happened after that, which of course was then having a whole bunch of other people coming forward and saying that he acted inappropriately. Uh, you know, on social media towards them. Uh, and now, more recently, his claim of, uh, you know, a serial infidelity, which, again, doesn't disqualify someone from public office, but mm-hmm. uh, is probably relevant to how people judge his character. So where is the line between personal mistakes, infidelity, what have you, and, as you said, uh, the role of a public politician? At what point does it cross the line and in, in we care as opposed to not caring? Yeah, I mean, I, I think with most of these things, Canadians just like the stories because it gives them a chance to talk about uh, these kinds of questions at work where usually you're not meant to. Um, I mean, hmm. for for people judging politicians, I mean, I think they expect politicians to act more than lawfully, right? So it's not just following the law, but also acting appropriately. Uh, and when they don't, uh, I think then it leads them to judge them a bit differently. But again... Uh, it seems to me that Canadians are probably fairly forgiving around these uh, these kinds of questions, or they have short memories. Uh, but certainly, it does make it harder for their constituents to, uh, you know, to make up their minds about these things. I mean, for Tony Clement, there may be other issues around it. I mean, we all remember that he was a minister of industry who convinced us that uh, asking Canadians on the census about the number of bathrooms in their house was sharing too much of an intimate detail. Uh, you know, again, some of those kinds of claims maybe we reevaluate a bit differently given his own uh, personal practice. Uh, is his career, is his political career over? Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, in a way, uh, he's been very successful in getting reelected, often with pretty large margins in his riding. Uh, most Canadians vote not based on the person but on the party, which allows people who do relatively disgraceful things to sometimes get uh, reelected. You know, in a case like this, if it became a security issue, I think it would be, you know, I doubt he would get uh, the nomination again. 
if some of these claims about harassing people on Instagram uh, were really uh, verified, I think likewise he'd be unlikely to uh, be given the green light by the Conservative Party to run again. So that kind of indicates probably the end of his political career. Uh, but again, if, if he was able to run, I think there's a pretty good chance that he'd be re-elected. Again, simply because most Canadians don't vote for the local representative, they vote for the party that they want, and they, they won't vote for someone else. You know, if they think themselves conservatives, they're not going to vote uh, for another party simply because they have questions with uh, Mr. Clement's personal ethics. So will Canadians, uh, do Canadians care about his personal life or the fact that the, with the security connection that makes it different? Uh, well, I mean, I think in the politics in the moment, it's probably tied up more in this kind of Me Too moment. Uh, so I think for a lot of people, the question is, well, you know, what was he doing on social media? Uh, I mean, I suspect for part of the Conservative Party base, it's in fact the question of infidelity will be important to them. Uh, I mean, we'll see where the, the question of security goes. In many ways, I think that's the most important one. Um, because, again, this is a new committee that he's sitting on, one that... Uh, you know, there was some hope that it would improve the quality of parliamentary oversight of the security agencies. Um, if, you know, he has managed to lose some of the confidence in those uh, those security communities that these parliamentarians will do their job properly, that's maybe the most important long-term impact in terms of Canadian politics and our capacity as citizens to make sure that our security agencies are acting in a manner consistent with the, the will of the population. Uh, Ontario Conservatives dealing with their own situations. This Is this the tip of the iceberg? Does this happen all the time? We just don't know about it. Is this collateral damage from the Me Too movement, isolated incident? How do you view this? Well, I mean, I wouldn't call it collateral damage from the Me Too movement. I think uh, we've had a discussion about what's acceptable behavior and what's going to be treated as just boys being boys or politicians being politicians. Um, and I think as part of that, uh, things that in the past, in the very recent past, uh, were deemed to be uh, acceptable or forgivable uh, as part of the political world, uh, people are now saying, well, no, that is actually grossly inappropriate. And so, yeah, I think we'll probably see a raft of, of situations a bit similar to this. Um, it's a kind of a significant a moment of learning, I think, for a lot of the politicians who were able to act uh, in rather abusive ways in the past. Um, so, yeah, I suspect we'll see a bit more of this as uh, people sort out their behavior. Uh, I can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on uh, what happened south of the border and in regard to President Trump and his press conference and the CNN reporter and now the uh, uh, apparently the video that Sarah Sanders has forwarded has been doctored. What, what are your thoughts with all of this, especially post-midterm, Peter? Uh, well, I mean, I think it's profoundly worrying. I mean, uh, you know, it's not the the first time with this uh, this president that we've seen these kinds of questions. But if the if the media is unable to do their job properly, uh, if you know, asking a question, uh, and perhaps you know, the the reporter should have given up his microphone, but there was nothing really out of place for any uh, press conference I've ever seen in terms of that kind of behavior. If this is now suddenly, you know, beyond the pale, and uh, one takes away press credentials and so forth on those grounds. Uh, I think we do have to be worried about, you know, the capacity of us as, as democratic citizens to, to judge officials based on having the media cover it. So I think for the Americans, it's uh, kind of a chilling moment. Um, but again, there's been so many of them that uh, I suspect it won't be a moment of truth. Uh, 
these things seem to uh, accumulate uh, without people necessarily changing their views of politicians. Hmm. It's. Uh, I was surprised, although the reporter that came after him from NBC did uh, certainly um, uh, try to to, to credit uh, Acosta, I'm surprised the rest didn't just ask the same question. Yes, I mean, uh, it, is a, it is a situation where we may have seen a sort of explosion in the number of media sources and, uh, you know, a kind of a less strong esprit de corps than one might have seen in the past. I mean, because there was an idea at one point of a press gallery at these different legislatures and ensuring that uh, everyone was treated properly recognizing that if someone got, you know, hurt today, it could be you getting hurt tomorrow. So it's true in in that context. It is a bit surprising that uh, there wasn't a greater show, uh, you know, either, you know, your idea of asking the same question or, or to find other forms of, uh, you know, of criticism. I mean, even the way that the next reporter spoke was a bit odd in terms of just pointing out that he thought he was a good journalist, um, but it was almost in the role of a supplicant to the, pre- to, to the president rather than uh, to really ask a question of, like, what's going on. Do you think that uh, the uh, Democrats taking over the House has irritated him more than he's letting on? Uh, yeah, I'm Because sure. he seemed to melt down at that press conference. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, there seems to be a lot of irritants in uh, the president's life, um, but presumably that must be one of them. Uh, you know, there's also, I'm sure, some other people who had supported him at various stages who got defeated. You know, which would be natural in any electoral cycle, but I think it's a it's a president who really takes that personally. Uh, also, with asking for uh, Mr. Sessions' uh, resignation, yeah. you know, clearly, uh, you know, uh, that was obviously pushed by something. But I think even just thinking about that probably further irritates <laughs> the president. So, uh, yeah, it's hard to know what the the uh, proximate cause was, but I mean, the midterms is, is the obvious one. Peter Grave has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Have a good weekend. And you too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Of course, changes uh, right after the midterms. Some surprised that it happened so quickly, but uh, Jeff Sessions removed as attorney general for the president of the United States. Now there's all sorts of uh, concern floating around that uh, this could somehow affect the Mueller investigation. To talk more about all of this, Chris Edelson is with us, assistant professor, School of Public Affairs, American University, with expertise in constitutional interpretation, presidential power, and all this sort of thing. And Chris is with us now. Chris, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, good to be with you. Um, uh, Mueller says his team is writing the final report. Has things been sped up? Has this process been sped up because of the changing in the attorney general? Well, Mueller hasn't said that. Uh, there are reports that it may be happening. I would take them with a grain of salt. We do not know that for sure. Um, certainly there's pressure, and Robert Mueller has been for some time, but where he is precisely, I don't think anyone outside of the investigation knows for sure. Does he feel pressure, even more so pressure, to get it done that there has been a position with the inter, uh, the change of position with the Attorney General? Well, I can only speculate, but here's what I would what I would say. He has known for quite... It's been clear, there was reporting earlier this year that the President tried to fire Robert Mueller last year. He asked his, his uh, White House counsel to do that. It was not done. Robert Mueller knows what the pressure is. He's known that for some time. It's been telegraphed. Donald Trump has made very clear that he wants this to end. So... But what that means is Robert Mueller's had a lot of time to prepare. He's done that in a few ways that we know about publicly. He's uh, farmed out some of the investigations to other offices. 
Um, he's done other things, or may have done other things privately. I would suspect that he's doing whatever he can to prepare in case the investigation is shut down. Considering it has gone this far, what is the chance of it shutting down? Um, it's it's a real possibility. I mean, it, like I said, it's been telegraphed for quite some time. Uh, when Donald Trump uh, named this man Matthew Whitaker, who has spoken, Matthew Whitaker was became known to the Trump administration as a commentator on television, who was talking about how the investigation could be shut down. It was sort of his audition for the job. So. I mean, to me, it looks like this is a move to either shut down or undermine the investigation. I would consider it certainly an imminent threat. Uh, that being said, if that happens or the president or Whitaker attempts to do that, what will the blowback be and will the Dems just not start their own? Of course. I mean, so the fact that the Democrats won majority in the House is an important piece here. If if Mueller is fired and the investigation is shut down or, or limited in some way, there are a lot of things that can happen. Uh, the House in January, once the Democrats take their majority, can hold investigations of their own. They could call Robert Mueller in to testify. Um, they could begin impeachment proceedings. They could uh, use other tools to, to pressure the president. For instance, let's say that Robert Mueller is still under threat but not fired. They could refuse to pass legislation that the president wants, spending legislation, unless there's uh, a piece of legislation that protects the Mueller investigation. So now that they have a majority, there's certainly much more they can do. So why would the president even attempt to shut down this investigation now if the, the long, if in the end, in the long run, this turns out to be worse for him? Because as they shut down his investigation, the Dems will just fire up theirs using a lot of their information and perhaps even more. Right. I mean, I can only speculate, but from what I see, uh, this is a man who is often his own worst enemy. The reason we have him on investigation in the first place is because Donald Trump fired James Comey. Right. Um, I don't think he necessarily does things in a way that always works to his advantage. And he's, I, everything we know about this investigation is that it is the highest level of trouble for the administration. Top people from his campaign have been indicted, have entered guilty pleas, have been convicted in federal court, including his campaign chair. He's in a lot of trouble, and he's made it worse in the past. He may make it worse again. I don't think he always acts in his own best interest. Uh, are you surprised that Sessions was fired so quickly after the midterms? Um, not really. I mean, it was pretty clear it was going to happen sometime. I guess the fact that it happened was it the day after. It's hard to keep track. It's so yeah. quick. But, uh, yeah, the day after. Uh, I guess maybe that's a little surprising that it would be that quick. But uh, the expectation is that it would happen sometime after the midterm. So, you know, big picture, no, it, it was expected to happen. And then again, I know this, you know this, Robert Mueller knew this. Is Donald Trump more upset about the Democrats taking the House and what he's letting on? And I'm using that, uh, I'm, uh, uh, for example, his meltdown at the press conference involving the right. CNN reporter. I mean, he just seemed to come unraveled yeah. there. I, I was about to say, it's embarrassing. He's letting on quite a bit. This is a man who, he was, you know, basically getting a screaming match with reporters who were acting quite calmly. He, he called one reporter an enemy of the people, term he's used before, called it another a terrible person. Um, so he's melting down pretty, you know, in pretty pretty high degree publicly. It, it may well be worse privately. I, I, this is a man who gives en- every indication of feeling cornered, and I, I think he has reason to feel that way. I think someone with a with a an even temperament would have a hard time operating in this environment. This is not a man with an even temperament, so that makes it probably more volatile. So, what are the last uh, two years of this term going to be like for him? Will there be two years is my first question. We don't know. Hmm. Um, <laughs> as, long, as, as long as he's in office, what I expect is 
more of the same. Uh, you know, volatility, lashing out, undermining the rule of law. The, this, the appointment of Whitaker is something that, for scholars of presidential power and the public in general, we had mass protests in cities across the United States yesterday, tens of thousands of people turning out. Because I think, to me, the biggest challenge in the United States right now is not about liberals versus conservatives or Republicans versus Democrats. It's people who believe in constitutional democracy versus those who don't. Donald Trump is, is a, a threat to the rule of law and constitutional democracy. And we don't know for sure how it's going to turn out. I'm hopeful that we make it through, but it, it's not guaranteed. Will uh, Donald Trump supply answers to Mueller's questions? Will it get that far? Uh, that's been talked about for a long time. It's hard for me to I, I don't know for sure. Um, and I don't know. There's been speculation that Robert Mueller may have, and this is completely speculation, but there's speculation that Mueller was doing that as a way to draw things out and protect his own investigation. In other words, as long as Trump's team thought that there was a ongoing discussion about Trump testifying, that you know, that, would, that would allow him to keep going, and maybe it's not essential to Mueller. So I don't know. Um, in, in a normal investigation, you would want to talk to the president. Um, this president, it's, you know, it's difficult. Uh, it, it's hard to, to see for sure that you'd be able to, to get that. I don't know. Um, I think I'm sure he would like to get answers from the president, but it may not be necessary. We'll see. What about the president's relationship with Roger Stone, who allegedly uh, was talking to the Russian hacker involved in all of this? Yeah. Um, uh, how does this complicate things? I mean, how uh, do we get to this point? Will we hear about this? I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but Stone himself has said that he expects to be indicted. Uh, I obviously do not know. I've, I've read the reporting, as you say, about Stone's connections to WikiLeaks. I know the things he said during the campaign when he seemed to know in advance when things were going to happen. Uh, Stone is certainly a shadowy figure who could end up indicted. It's a complicated situation already. This could make it more complicated. I guess one question will be Stone, like others before him, has insisted he will never testify against the president. Others have done so. I mean, one thing was a really, this was a surprise to me, was Paul Manafort eventually made a deal, and he's speaking to the Mueller team, and there were reports that he's spoken to them, I think it was nine times. So, uh, that would be one question I have. Does Stone get indicted? Does he cooperate? Does he add to the list of people who are already cooperating with the Mueller investigation? This is going to be very interesting uh, after January, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, that's the weird thing, living through this. Uh, every day I wake up, and I've, I've never, I haven't really been fully relaxed uh, at any time in the last two-plus years, going back to the campaign. But it's always interesting. There's something more going on that, you know, if this were a movie or something, I think I might enjoy it. Living through it, it's very difficult. Something I tell students in class often is the idea that history is contingent. And so when we look back at history, we know, we know what happened, and it seems like it's inevitable. When we live through it, we don't know. And I, I'm hopeful, as I say, but I don't know for sure how this turns out. And I don't mean that in a paranoid way. I'm not pessimistic, but I think we need to be careful to, make, to, to say that we don't, nothing is guaranteed about constitutional democracy and the rule of law. I am encouraged, by the way, that people are responding across party lines in many ways. This is something that's not a partisan issue, and there are many Republicans who understand the danger here, too. 
Don't you find it odd that that there was so much interest, and I mean, this just shows you how polarizing uh, the situation is, that there was such yeah. interest in the midterm elections. I mean, normally people don't even notice these things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, people are just holding, yeah. hoping that you get a good turnout for a presidential election. Same with us up here. Uh, right. We've turned politics into a daily reality TV game show. Is that what it takes to keep the public engaged? Well, the game show aspect is uh, unfortunate, to say the least. The energy that people are getting involved, I take that as an encouraging sign. There's been research here. A couple of professors, Theda Scottsdale and Blair Putnam, have, have uh, done research on the response to Trump's election. And what they found is that people, as you're saying, people become involved in ways they never did before. People who were not interested in politics, people who certainly didn't follow it day to day. And they got involved. They, their research found that it was, in fact, the central kind of group of people who become involved are are women, uh, and often older women, mid-career, late-career, retired women. They've been very engaged in organizing campaigns and running for office. And so I take those things as hopeful signs. In a democracy, we need people to be involved, and often that hasn't been the case. In the last two years, one good thing that's come out of all this is I think more people are engaged. You know, uh, many experts who I've talked to, similar to yourself, I mean, we just can't believe that every day they're not as as one story. There seems to be almost two or three. I can't let you go without asking about the altered video. Have we come to a new new low with this? How far will this altered video issue go? Thanks for asking about it. It is so hard to keep track of everything that's going on. This is, I mean, it's it's important to maintain one's one's ability to be shocked. This is shocking. Uh, very, you know, astute and, and reasonable and not very easily flappable commentators here have made comparisons to Orwell. I think if there's no other way to see it. I, 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 an administration that's relying on doctored video to justify suppressing freedom of the press, this is really, really bad stuff. And Donald Trump stood up today and said, this is ridiculous that we're even assuming this. Yeah. And it's been proven, has it right. not? That's right. Well, so Donald Trump is... One thing that's remarkable about him is, he's, I think, at his core, he's a bully, and he pushes people around, but he also, he very confidently says things that are not true, and he does it so confidently that yeah. I think it's hard not to, to think, maybe, you know, maybe there's something right. Yeah. There's not, though, and that, you know, often it's just not true, uh, but it's, we, what we really need is Republicans to point this out, otherwise it just gets described as a partisan back and forth, which, which it's not. Can Donald Trump run the same campaign next time as he did last time? I would suspect he, he will. He, I mean, again, assuming he does, I don't, I don't assume anything. He might not finish his term. He might not run again. He might get a primary challenge. He might get defeated in the primaries. Assuming he does run, there's every reason to think he believes that he did the right thing. He believes that he was the only one who knew how to run the campaign in 2016, and he applied that strategy in 2018 with the, all the discussion of the caravan, anti-immigrant feeling, this commercial they came up with where they showed a crazed killer, who had, uh, immigrant who had come in and murdered police officers, and they tried to blame this on Democrats. I think he thinks all that stuff works. Um, it clearly energizes his base. Uh, the evidence from the 2018 election we just had uh, is that it may not work again. Um, and to the extent it worked in 2016, it worked very, very narrowly. Um, so... I would expect, yeah, that he would run the same campaign. I, I don't know yet whether it will work. Is he capable of running any other kind of campaign? I doubt it. I mean, I think this is who he is. Uh, I think he's, he's somebody who's motivated by anger and fear and stirring things up and chaos. And 
he also is somebody who thinks that he's he's right and can't kind of receive criticism. So, I, like I said, I think he looks at the campaign and says, "Hey, I won. I did. People told me not to do this, and I won, and it worked." And I, I suspect he will continue to think that. Do you think he'll flame out before the next election? Like I said, it's quite. I mean, I have no way to assign possibly you know percentages to this, but I, I could see the presidency ending before the next election. I could see him. Uh, challenge in the primary. I could see him, you know, displaced by a primary challenger. Uh, these things are certainly possible. I can't say any of them are probable, but yeah, I, I think we don't know. It two years is a long time uh, in this presidency, and I, I would not say with certainty that he will run again. Especially having control of the Senate and the House, and now not the the House anymore, life yeah. will be a lot right. more difficult for him moving forward. How do you think he's going to handle that added pressure of not being able to to move things through? Unfortunately, and I take no no pleasure in saying this, I don't think very well. We've already seen the response to that just in a few days. What's going to happen when the Democrats take control in January and start investigating and? getting us tax returns and bringing in witnesses to testify about Russia, looking to, we've had incredible problems with corruption from cabinet members. All of this stuff will, will only make things worse in terms of his temper and his response. I, you know, I don't look forward to seeing, to seeing that. Is this altered video story over? Is it just been consumed and spat out like every other story that seems to come in the, in the news cycle? Or does this have legs? Could this matter? I think I've said that a million I mean, times. Right. I mean, so I would say, you know, as a practical matter, because we've seen everything else goes away, that's a big deal. This probably will, too. It shouldn't. Um, people should keep... Rem- I mean, I, I always try to remember all these shocking things, you know, the Access Hollywood video that he's mocking a disabled journalist. None of these things should be forgotten. It's in, in the avalanche of stories that come out every day and sometimes every hour. It's hard to keep track of them. I hope this doesn't get lost. Chris Edelson, uh, Chris Edelson has been with us, Assistant Professor, School of Public Affairs, American University. Chris, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, Fascinating you. discussion. Thank it- you very much. I appreciate it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, of course, uh, public relations consultant, Alyssa Freeman PR, and is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. Always appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Scott. I want to start with the whole uh, Tory Stafford case and Terry Lynn McClintock. Uh, This, I remember, it just outraged people when we talked about it the day of, and a a lot of public backlash. And and basically what had happened here was Terry Lynn McClintock, the killer of Tory Stafford, was moved to an Aboriginal healing center, I think it was nine months before anyone even knew about it, including the family. And the policy is the family is supposed to be notified when this sort of thing happens, the victims' families. Uh, Rodney uh, Stafford eventually found out about it and went public with the information. Uh, I remember the uh, Trudeau government being questioned about this in the House. Uh, The prime minister called the opposition ambulance chasers for even bringing this up. Yet yesterday, Tory Stafford's dad said it was the public that put Terry Lynn McClintock back behind bars because they spoke up. Is this an example of the public's voice counting? Yes, I would absolutely agree with that assessment, Scott. This is when the public uh, rose up together as a voice, um, as a consistent voice, 
you know, sometimes when people comment on something, you get a positive and you get a negative. There was no dissension in terms of how people felt about having her moved to the healing lodge instead of, you know, staying behind bars where people felt she rightly should be for her participation in the murder. You know, and because of that consistency of voice, it became a bit of a roar. And, you know, that's something that's really hard to ignore. So when you have impassioned pleas from the public on behalf of the parents, and then it starts to make its way through the media. And, you know, when, when, change, when you know, government institutions and large organizations need to have their minds changed, there has to be some sort of groundswell of, of voices or groundswell of support. And, you know, we all know in government departments, you know, every morning there is somebody charged with going through the papers and, and collecting all the media clips. And then they see what the sea of change or they see what public opinion is netting out as. And it, it was overwhelmingly for, you know, not having this woman stay in a healing lodge and, and serving her time behind bars. And then, you know, you've got a way as a deciding organization, you've got a way. Is this something that we want to weigh into or can we just ignore it and let the let it run its course? Well, they didn't. And it was too much of a hot potato issue. And so therefore, there she is behind bars again. And not only was she moved back, but it led to policy change. So how does that resonate when Trudeau's calling the conservatives ambulance chasers for bringing this up? If you can't beat them, join them, Scott. It's election year. You know, what are you going to, you know, you always say, pick your battles, choose your battles, right? So this is one where he started out on one message track and then realized this is not worth me standing on my high horse and going on in a different direction. When there's a, a general sea wave that is pointing to change, you can either get on board, agree with it, and then support the public that is telling you they want to see change. And that's exactly what they did. And, you know, policy is not something that you can change overnight. Policy is something that, you know, the wheels and the, of, of bureaucracy can certainly grind its way through. And this actually happened quite quickly. So this is honestly what I would consider best case scenario of advocacy leading to policy change in a very short period of time. Will the term ambulance chaser come back to haunt him, especially when the ambulance chasing led to not only the change in this situation with her back in prison, but also for future with a policy change? Wait to the first debate, Scott. It'll, it'll yeah. undoubtedly come out. I'm sure that there's some, you know, some person in the Tory uh, back office there writing down all these hot button phrases and words and just waiting to pop them into a narrative when it suits them best. I think what bothers me most about all of this, Alyssa, is that um, that that the liberals kind of blew this all off like nobody really cared about it. And then I, I think the double whammy was when all of a sudden Ralph Goodale comes out. And, and I don't know, as a, safety, uh, as a safety minister, this guy doesn't do it for me. I don't feel very safe uh, when I hear him speak because I think he's just it's just political jargon. It, it's just typical political jargon that I hear from this guy. But that's my own personal opinion. Uh, that being said, you know, uh, he changed the policy and they were beating the drum that, you know, this is not going to happen. And he was uh, happened again. And, and as a result, policy change have been made. But then he was asked about whether this would affect the Terry Lynn McClintock case, and he refused to answer. He just, you know, know, he makes up some other political jargon and doesn't answer the question. And then 
secretly, just as secretly as she was moved out of a prison and into a healing lodge, just as secretly she's moved back in. Like, where does this get the government? Why didn't they just come out and say, yeah, we made a, we, obviously we goofed because they've changed their mind. Why not just say that and say, and oh yeah, we're looking at putting Terry Lynn McClintock back in. Why would they just, you know, as quietly as it all happened? And once again, we hear from Tory's dad, Rodney, what has all happened? Why didn't he say this? Well, first of all, Ralph Goodale has been around since the beginning of time. So he's been there, seen it all and done it all. So he's a very, very, he may seem sort of, you know, staid and in some cases maybe a bit stodgy. He's not your flashiest politician, but also by not being flashy, he's not a lightning rod for controversy. That's the first thing. And that's been his M.O. all the way. He knows how government works. He knows how the back room works. He, he stays under the stays, radar. And he stays under the radar, exactly. So, you know, when you have this very sort of behind-the-scenes, non-transparent way of doing business, all it says to me is, is that you are shortening the news cycle. You're trying to prevent this story from going on and on any longer than it needs to. If it's but why wouldn't you take story, credit? What, you know, you're putting the person back in. Why wouldn't well, you take credit for it? Well, there's two sides to the coin, though. There's two sides to the coin because they made a mistake. So, you know, when you retell a story, when reporters report on it, the first thing, the first three or four paragraphs or the first, you know, opening is going to be, well, first they decided to secretly put her in a, you know, they're going to repeat the charge. And best practice communications detail that and dictate that you do never, you never repeat the charge. I don't so, know. Alyssa, if, I, if, if he had stood up there and said, or even the prime minister, you know what? We goofed and we heard you. And we're reacting as a result of listening to you. Don't you think that would go a lot farther in this discussion? You know, you have to wonder. And, and you know what, Scott, I don't disagree with you. But this is running up to an election year. So I think that they're sort of hedging their bets in the pros and the cons. And I think it sounds case, like they're getting scared. Well, this is it. So they're trying to think, well, is this something that we really want to stand up about? Or do we just want to report on it after the fact and let the story go away? Because there is... Uh, less to lose, there's more to lose and less to gain. So I'm sure you play that game, you know, when they're in their offices and going, okay, what do we do about this? Do we say that we were wrong and that we goofed and now we're making it right? Well, they're probably thinking they're going to take it on the chin if they do that. And I'm just telling you, and I'm just speculating what I think goes on right. in terms of weighing the pros and cons. I'm not saying it was the right or wrong way to do, but I'm telling you what they're thinking was. Are they also doing this and to keep it quiet for, or, 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 or more quiet than exactly like you're talking about? Are they doing it because there are still questions unanswered? For example, how the hell did this happen in the first place? Well, the more you talk that, about it, the more you got to go into and dig deeper into this and get into the layers and, and find out exactly what went wrong, who made the call. I mean, there's still tons of unanswered questions. Well, have you ever heard of a journalist that only asks the very top line questions and then leaves the room? Yeah, exactly. No. So, you know, you have to assume that they're going to ask those top line questions and then they're going to dig and they're going to dig and they're going to dig. And you need to either answer or skirt the issue and say no comment. Just as he said, OK, well, you know, now what? So, you know, be that as it may, therefore, by sort of cutting this narrative off at the knees and trying to cut the news cycle off at the knees, they only have to answer absolutely what they need to and then move on. So, I don't know. I think this uh, ambulance chaser thing is going to come back to haunt him big time, especially when he doubled down afterwards and said, and I'm paraphrasing, something about it stings, doesn't it? Or, or like he came back and doubled down on it. 
Uh, and you know that clip's going to be floating around come election time. Well, you know, I think that there's a lot of push and pull between Trudeau's staff and his moral high ground. And I think a lot of the times people look at it as virtue signaling. And I think that most of the time he sometimes he leads with what his his moral compass tells him, whether or not it makes for good politics. All right. And, let, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, go because no, go, I was going to change <laughs> subjects. So finish it off. No. And so therefore, that often, often can get him into hot water. All right. I want to bring up the stuff with uh, CNN, Jim Acosta and uh, the president. Obviously, this started with an encounter between the president and Jim Acosta. Uh, The president clearly uh, upset during this press conference as he actually, um, you know, unloaded on another reporter as well, calling her uh, or saying that the question that she asked was racist, even though she's Afro-American. That being said, he, he seemed to lose his cool. And first of all, your thoughts with Jim Acosta, did he do anything wrong here with the way he addressed the president? You know, I've been reading a lot about this. And the first thing that I saw that absolutely made me sick was the fact that Sarah Huckabee Sanders came out with a doctored version. It was almost like a Zap Ruder film. So they she went to one of the editors at a very right wing publication, InfoWars, yeah. and they actually sped up the film to make it look like Acosta was the one who was the aggressor. Yeah. And people went crazy over it. And, you know, I was reading the tweets, and they were quite vitriolic against Sarah Huckabee Stan- Sanders, and for good reason. And, you know, it, it, there's this whole sort of push and pull school of thought was who is the aggressor, the young intern who went in and grabbed the microphone being basically told, which, you know, do as you're told. Go yeah. up to Jim Acosta from CNN and grab the microphone, which, quite frankly, yeah. is an untenable situation exactly. for any kid. And she is a kid. She's yeah. in her 20s. She's a kid. Yeah. Um, and we're she going to look at the president or Sarah Huckabee Sanders and say, no, that's not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. So and then there's this whole other school of thought where people who I thought were, you know, largely rational people are saying, Acosta was the aggressor. He baited him. He provoked him. And so, therefore, he should rightly, rightly have his his credentials taken away. And I'm thinking, what? Exactly. So what? So what if he acted like an ass? He's a reporter. You're the president of the United States. Can't you handle this? Can't you word your way out of it? Well, obviously, we know that Trump cannot and that he has a very, very thin skin. So based on his thin skin, I think that Acosta knew he was getting underneath it. Yeah. And he was pressing and pressing him on his narrative about the caravan that was at the doors of the, the U.S. And the invasion. Come and the invasion, which we all know was untrue. We all know. Well, you have to actually untrue. be at the you have to actually be at the border before you can invade. Well, they're still they're 900 miles away. The they're, they're, they're months and months and months away from the border. So not months, but they're definitely weeks away from yeah. the border. There was even an attack ad based on that, yeah, which yeah. even Fox News pulled. Yeah. Uh, all the major networks pulled it after maybe four or five showings. And even Fox News says this is patently false. So, you know, first of all, Trump doesn't like to lose. He lost the House. He's saying that they made some gains in the Senate, and that was supposed to mollify him. And then, you know, he'll, after absolutely dragging Nancy Pelosi through the dirt, guess who he has to work with the whole time now for the next two years. So, but a Democratic Congress could also be a, um, a convenient sort of uh, whipping boy for, uh, for Trump saying, well, I can't get anything done because this Congress isn't going to let me do it. But, uh, you know, uh, what president hasn't, compl- hasn't complained about that when they don't have control of that particular branch? 
So I think that we're going to see more of this. I think that his behavior is completely out of line. But what really, really, really shocks me, what really shocks me, Scott, is that the people who look at this and listen to the way the president talks down to people and about people and 110% support him in his actions. He was uh, discrediting our president. He wasn't giving our president enough credit. And I'm looking at this going, you know, where is this coming from? I I was once asked if, you know, Trump's rhetoric was frightening. And my answer to that is I find that the people who believe it are more frightening. These are the people who internalize those lies. These are the imp- people who, f- who are emboldened by uh, their, their racist attitudes and no longer are fearful of saying what's on their mind. That's the problem. Does That's and, what scares me. Uh, and, of course, we've talked about this a million times. Every time one of these issues comes up, is this the one? And, of course, it's not. They just all stack up on the mountain, so to speak. But does this change things because he is trying to silence the press? He had he physically, or got an intern to, physically take a microphone away from a reporter and then banned them and then said, I'll do it again to the others. So there's that issue of actually taking over the press conference. And then the second issue of Sarah Sanders sending out a video from InfoWars that has clearly been edited. Uh, You know, here's a president that screams fake news. At what point, how much evidence do we need to prove that he is the fake news? He's telling, he's been calling everybody a liar since the beginning of all of this because he's the only one that's yet to tell the truth. Well, you know, this is where you start to go down that really dark hole of a fascist state. And when you start taking away the credentials of mainstream media and only letting, let's say, Fox News and other very, very right-wing publications or media outlets in, like Breitbart. So when do people say that's enough, enough's enough? Well, the problem is, not the problem is, let's remember what type of person Trump is, and he still loves the limelight. And so when he has nobody else to blame for fake news, you know, he still has to keep that mainstream media around. Because he's certainly not going to call, you know, the publications that he believes in fake news, because then there's nobody. So I can't see him banning completely. All, well, listen, I, I don't know. I mean, I really should yeah. say that, should I, Scott? But I really can't see him banning that because he needs that. He needs to he needs to have that fed into his ego. He needs to be able to keep up his narrative of fake news. And you can't keep up the narrative if the fake news isn't in front of you. Where do you think this is going in his last half of the term? Clearly, to me, that press conference represented what the next half of this term is going to be like because his hands are tied. He had control of everything prior to the midterms. He has more control over the Senate, whoop-de-doo, but he has lost control of the House, which will definitely tie his hands moving forward. We've seen how he snapped in that press conference. Do you think we're going to see more of that? And how is that going to be um, interpreted from from Americans? Well, I think that we are going to see more of that. I think he's got a very thin skin right now. And when he, thought, I think when it was explained to him that he can't do what he wants to do anymore, I think that that really triggered um, angry reactions within him all the time. So I think what you're going to see is the continuation of more rallies. Well, if I can't get support here in the government, I'm just going to go out to the people. 
And if you fire all the fake news, well, they're not going to cover all those rallies. So he does need he does need all um, mainstream media. Um, I, th- I think that there, you know, the fact that there's now checks and balances which is what I think everybody wanted. There certainly wasn't a blue wave the way, uh, no. you know, people saw it. So I think that there's just going to be more rhetoric. Uh, there's going to be more rallies. He's going to now have to worry about the Mueller probe. He's going to have to worry about how he's going to get NAFTA signed or whatever they're calling it now. So there's a lot of things on his agenda that were moving at a certain direction and a certain speed that are no longer doing that. What happens to CNN and Jim Acosta after this? You know, that's really interesting, and it, 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 I'm wondering what CNN is doing about this, and maybe they're just giving Jim Acosta a break. But honestly, if he can't get back into the White House, they're going to have to appoint another reporter. And I don't think it'll be anybody who will be a powder puff or a pushover, um, but I think that they've seen what happens. And because of the altercation, this is not a very clear-cut type of story. People are still battling around with it, but... Um, I don't think we're going to see Jim Acosta in the White House briefings anytime soon. Alyssa Freeman has been with us, public relations consultant, Alyssa Freeman PR. Always, uh, Alyssa, thank you so much for the time. Have a great weekend. And you too, Scott. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.